Well, we're beginning a, another new sermon series this morning. So we had a, a several, I should say, longer sermon series back to back to back. And recently just finished last week, a five-part series through the letter of Jude. Today we begin a five-part series through the Old Testament book of Ruth. The sermon today, again the first of five, is really to set the table, to really tee up the rest of the story. We trust if the Lord tarries and gives us life that we will have other opportunities to consider the story of Ruth. So there are things that I'm going to withhold today that we look forward to thinking about together in the coming weeks. Things regarding a theology of the cross and redemptive historical realities and how the Lord worked to bring about salvation and to bring about his Christ. There's much more to consider along those lines in the coming weeks. But as we begin this series this morning, just want to throw a few shots across the bow for you in terms of major themes in the book of Ruth. Whether you have read it a number of times and love it, as some of you have texted me about this week, or whether you are like, brother, I don't know that I've ever read the book of Ruth. Either way, we will see repeatedly God bringing redemption out of emptiness. God bringing redemption out of our emptiness and out of our sin even. The theme of emptiness to fullness is all over this book. Our God, brothers and sisters, is a redeemer. Amen, somebody. We need that reality. God is a savior. We need that proclaimed to us. We need that extolled over us every time we gather so that we might be confirmed in the faith. We're going to get that repeatedly in the book of Ruth. Another major theme in this wonderful story is the theme of divine providence. We've confessed a lot about the providence of God already in our service this morning. Intentionally, we have done so. In a pointed way, divine providence will show itself in the story of Ruth. It's kind of like the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis that we would have considered not that long ago as a church, where you look at it and you're acknowledging on the one hand, well, of course, everything in God's world is providence. True. That's true. But there are certain stories, certain events, certain accounts, and we look at them and they scream, God is orchestrating this. Ruth is like that. And finally, in thinking about that redemption out of emptiness and nothingness. We're going to see, especially in the first few verses of the book, in the first chapter of the book, that when all seems lost, like everything from an earthly perspective is going terribly. Nothing to cling to, nothing to hope in, in terms of circumstance or life in this world. That is precisely when God shows up to do the work of redemption. When all seems lost, we will see the steadfast love of God to his people that never changes. When all seems lost, we will see the utter faithfulness of our God, even in the face of our sin and our doubt and our misery. We read Psalm 77 earlier this morning in our service where the psalmist is crying out that he's in agony in his soul. He finds no comfort anywhere. When he thinks about God, when he meditates upon the Lord, he moans. 
The Lord, it seems to him, holds his eyelids open so that he cannot find rest or sleep. Where does he go? What does he do in that moment? He thinks upon the works of God, the things that the Lord has done through history to demonstrate that he is a faithful God and to demonstrate that he is a savior of his people. So much of the scripture has that feel. We've got nothing. No hope. Joy is low. My love is cold. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Let's look to the faithfulness of our God. Open your Bibles if you have not already done that to the book of Ruth. If you're not familiar, it's toward the beginning of your Old Testament. After the five books of Moses, we have the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, and then Ruth, you will find there between Judges and 1 Samuel. Just a few comments while you are opening to Ruth. The author of this book is unknown, anonymous. The book was written during the time of King David, or perhaps a little bit later, given the genealogy at the end that includes David. And Ruth is rightly characterizes historical narrative in the form of short story. And even people who might not even trust in the Lord Jesus Christ would acknowledge it's one of the greatest shortest stories ever written. So let's look to it now. We're going to consider the first five verses of chapter one today. Listen now as I read them. This is the word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. We thank God for his word, all of it. Even when you read a passage like that, and you're thinking, there's not a lot of hope in that. It sounds bleak. We thank the Lord for his scriptures. My plan for us this morning is to preach a two-part message. The first part, I want to set the scene. I want us to consider the scene together, wrap our minds around the context, what's going on, get acquainted somewhat with some of the characters that we're going to get to know better in the coming weeks. And then in part two, I hope to offer three meditations, three reflections based upon the content of these first several verses. So part one, let's consider the scene. We read in verse one, that all of this takes place in the days when the judges ruled. Now, this time of the judges was characterized by instability and apostasy. If you haven't looked at the book of Judges lately, the one that precedes Ruth immediately in your Bible, read through parts of it in the coming weeks as we're thinking about Ruth and understand this is the context, this is the era in which this story occurred. The people of God during the time of the judges had strayed mightily 
from the word of God and from the ways of God. The repeated refrain of the latter part of the book of Judges is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. People were doing whatever they wanted to do. It wasn't good. You see that in chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 19, chapter 21, those words. The pattern of the book of Judges, the first 16 chapters of it anyway, is this. The people rebel against God. They sin against him. God then acts in a measure of judgment against his people. The people then repent, cry out to the Lord in misery, in oppression, and the Lord sends a judge, a deliverer, to rescue his people, and they experience some measure of rest, some measure of peace for a period of time. Now, as the book of Judges progresses, the repentance of the people dwindles, sort of gets watered down, right? It's not as acute. It's not as deep, perhaps. And as the book progresses, the character and even the nature of the deliverers themselves regresses. So the last of the judges, the last of the deliverers is Samson. And if we think about Samson, he breaks pretty much every vow that was made on his behalf. His life ends by bringing judgment on the enemies of God's people, yes, but his death, he, Samson, does not provide God's people with any meaningful rest. And then in the final chapters, chapters 17 to 21 of Judges, they graphically depict the depravity and the corruption of a nation that had lost its way. The darkness and the lostness was comprehensive. Israel had become at least as bad as the pagan nations that had inhabited the land of Canaan. And except for the times when God intervened to rescue his people and turn their hearts toward him, the time of the judges was bleak, it was dark, it was wicked. Anarchy, corruption, and lawlessness reign. That is where we find ourselves as Ruth begins in the time of the judges. We also read in verse 1 that there was a famine in the land. There's a, I, first of all, there's a famine in the promised land. That's striking enough. Remember that under the old covenant, in particular here, the covenant God had made with Moses, God had promised to bless his people with food in the promised land, if they were obedient to his commandments. Consider these words from Deuteronomy 7. And because you will listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. This is the word of God to his people under the covenant he made with Moses. The thing is, 
there was not much obedience to God's commands going around in the time of the judges. So there is famine. Bethlehem, right, is where Elimelech and his family hail from. Bethlehem, many in the room may know, means house of bread. And there is no grain in the house of bread as this account begins. We learn of a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah who went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Verse 2, we learn his name. His name is Elimelech. He leaves the promised land and goes to a foreign country. Now again, from a redemptive historical perspective, from a covenantal perspective, we need to understand that in the context of the Old Covenant, the covenant God had made with Abraham and Moses, Elimelech's choice to leave the promised land and head to Moab was a little bit different than us deciding to move to Atlanta. His decision, unlike our choice to move to Atlanta, for example, was an inherently theological choice. For us, we can be faithful in Asheville or Albuquerque and St. Louis or San Jose. However, under the covenants that he had made with Abraham and Moses, the Lord had brought his people out of Egypt to dwell in a land that he had given them. This was where the Lord had ordained for his people to be. This was for their good and for their protection. But Elimelech and his family leave this land and go to Moab. And the fact that it is the land of Moab is a thing. Where do we first learn of this land, these people? We learn in Genesis chapter 19. Some may remember as we made our way through that book. In Genesis chapter 19, in the aftermath of the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot, through incestuous relations with his daughters, had sons. The older of the two daughters bore a son whose name was Moab. So that, that union is what produced this people. The relationship between Israel and Moab was often strained through the history that is revealed to us in Scripture. Balak, king of Moab, had hired Balaam to curse Israel. Numbers 22, 23, 24. Moabite women had relations with Israelite men. And this resulted in Israelite men worshiping false gods, participating in sacrifices to pagan gods, which then resulted in a plague that killed 24,000 people in Numbers 25. The Moabites had also oppressed the Israelites in the days of a king named Eglon. We read of that in Judges chapter 3. And then Ehud, a deliverer, was sent to rescue Israel from that oppression at the hand of the Moabites. So for Elimelech, again, to leave the promised land in search of greener pastures in the fields of Moab was a theological decision. Rather than trusting the Lord to provide for his needs in the land that God had given to his people, Elimelech chose a path that seemed better to him. All of this is dripping with some irony, given that Elimelech's name means my God is king. Apparently, 
maybe not so much. Just like his fellow countrymen in the days of the judges, it seems that Elimelech was king for Elimelech. And I'm not trying to be too hard on this man. As we survey the scriptures, we think about this often. We tend to see ourselves in all the wrong places. And we tend to not see ourselves where we should see ourselves in the pages of God's word. We often do as Elimelech did. He, like his countrymen, chose to do what was best in his own eyes. We'll think more on that in a moment as it pertains to us. But it doesn't end well for him. You see in verse 3 that he would die in the land of Moab. Elimelech is married to a woman named Naomi. We're going to come back to her in just a moment. Her story is significant in this book, though it is not named after her. Elimelech and Naomi have two sons, one named Malon, one named Kilion. Their names mean illness and destruction, respectively. Not sure what's going on there in terms of the naming of those boys. But after the death of Elimelech, these sons get married. They get married to Moabite women. Now this too is a problem because God had been clear, again in this covenant context, that his people were not to intermarry with foreign people. They were not to intermarry with the peoples of the land. Deuteronomy 7 verses 3 and 4 and various other passages. So all of this that's going on, the sojourning in Moab, the obvious death of Elimelech, the action of the two sons to marry foreign women, none of this is good. And it's painfully predictable. How many times have we seen this movie in our lives? How many times have we seen this movie in the lives of people we love? One poor decision leads to many other poor decisions. One sinful decision leads to many more sinful decisions. It's how it goes. In this case, the decision of Elimelech to move his family to Moab has repercussions for his sons. Both of them, too, would die. We read in verses 4 and 5, would die in the land of Moab. Now back to Naomi. As I mentioned, the book is named for Ruth, it's heroine. And Boaz is going to be a central figure in the narrative as well, the redeemer. We'll think about him in the coming weeks. But Naomi's story is very front and center in this book. As we trace Naomi in chapter 1 to Naomi at the end of it in chapter 4, it's going to be remarkable to see what the Lord does in her, for her, through her, that everyone around her can see. But as we look at these five verses this morning, put yourself here in this account, in the space of just a few short verses, this woman's life has completely changed. She has become a widow. But at least she still has her sons. Right? They could take care of her. The sons take wives. There was the prospect of grandchildren, but that did not happen. Now, barrenness, the fact that neither Orpah nor Ruth had children, 
while they were in Moab. That's not explicitly brought out, but it's there. There's no children. Then, to make matters worse, Malon and Kilion die. Naomi is now a childless widow in a foreign land. She has no safety net socially to catch her. She's not even with her people. She has no blood relatives with her. She has two daughters-in-law who are not formally related to her any longer who are foreigners themselves. It's all she has. All in Naomi's life seems lost. There has been sin. There's been calamity. There's been hardship. There's been tragedy. You name it. It's there. Naomi's name means sweet or pleasant. But she's going to tell people not to call her that. She's going to tell people when she goes back to Bethlehem, which we'll look at next week, she's going to say, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because from her perspective, the Lord had dealt bitterly with her. His providence in her life had been anything but sweet. From her vantage point, she had left Bethlehem full, but she would return empty. And so all of this raises the question, what is God going to do? What's he going to do? And we'll consider that together in the coming weeks. So that's the, the trailer. If you want to think more about that, which I trust you do, Come back next Sunday and the ones thereafter. I want to transition now to part two of our time together this morning. And I want to offer three reflections, three meditations from Ruth 1, 1 to 5. Reflection number one. We are like the saints we see on the pages of Scripture. Reflection number one. We are like the saints we see on the pages of Scripture. To be very clear, I don't mean this in a flattering way for any of us, for them or for us. We, just like the people that we read of in the pages of the Bible, are prone to go our own way. We are prone to make choices that seem good in our eyes. We're prone to do things that bring some sense of comfort to us in this life. We're prone to pursue things that satisfy in this life. The temptation, friends, is always to live for the here and now. And doing that, living for the here and now, is not something we need to be taught to do. To live for the here and now is as natural as it is to breathe. Israel did this over and over. The Old Testament, the scriptures bear that out. Elimelech and his household do that in this text. We want to be sympathetic. It's like, hey, there's, there's famine. They leave the land. They're going to do what they need to do. But we do this too. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we want something really, really badly. And even though we know that God's word says otherwise, we can't shake it. Just has its claws in us, won't let go. Sometimes, from our perspective, we're trying to live for God, but as we see it, trying to live for God is not bringing good things in our lives. 
So we think to ourselves, God's way, well, I, on the one hand, kind of agree with him. God's way, it's just not working for me. I'm trying. But he just is not blessing me. So maybe I need to go another way. Maybe we simply follow the course of the world without giving it a lot of thought. We see what other people are doing. We just think, well, I mean, this is normal. This is what people do. It's going to do it too. Or maybe we rationalize and justify what we want to do because it is what everyone else is doing. We say, you know, it's normal for people to do this or that. It's a new day now. People might have thought differently in ages past, but there's all kinds of sociological reasons for that. There's all kinds of psychological reasons for that. There's all kinds of developmental reasons for that. We know better now. And so to do this or this or this seems okay. Given our tendency to do all of these things and given the pattern that God's people have demonstrated through history, our prayer is a simple one. May God have mercy on us. And may he give us grace because we are in desperate need of it. While it is natural to do what we want to do, while it is natural to do what seems good to us, on the flip, to live based on the promises of God is not natural. To live in light of God's law is not natural. To hope in and for things that we can't see is not natural. To believe God's gospel and trust his Christ is not natural. It's supernatural. We need grace for that. And like we thought about last week, we pray on the regular. Lord, I believe, I believe you. Help my unbelief. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, grieved by the fact that you know you're straying. Maybe as we're sitting here thinking about these things, it's uncomfortable for you. Well, beloved, I, I have a word for you from the scriptures. Remember this, that God's grace not only extends to those who are outside to bring in, it extends to those who have rebelled from the inside to restore. So regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your struggle, sinner, look to Christ, and there is grace. Reflection number two. I want us to think for a moment about God's work in his people. In particular, what I mean is how he does it. I want to think about God's work in his people in the ways in which he does that work. First kind of subheader for me. This is not an exhaustive list, obviously. We'd be here all day. First subheader is that he uses his law. God uses his law in the lives of his people. Now, I've already brought this out a little bit. I want to explain briefly some more just so we're all clear and on the same page. In the old covenant, under the law of Moses, the covenant that God had made with Moses, there are temporal blessings and temporal judgments associated with obedience and disobedience to God's law. There were covenant curses and judgments that God would work in the lives of his people 
based upon obedience or disobedience to his law. These temporal blessings and temporal judgments under the Mosaic Covenant are in view in the book of Ruth. People are dying. Wounds are barren. There's famine in the land. Now, we live in a different era of redemptive history. So we need to be careful that we don't draw straight one-to-one lines between certain sin and particular judgment. Think Jesus, right, as he's ushering in this new era in redemptive history, Luke chapter 13. And he says to a Jewish audience, you know those Galileans who were slaughtered by Pontius Pilate. Do you think that they were any worse than you? No, they were not. Unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. Or those 18 people upon whom the tower in Siloam fell. Do you think they were worse than you? No, they weren't. Repent, or you will likewise perish. John 9, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Christ says, neither one, actually. It's that the works of God might be displayed. So we do live under the new covenant, where this kind of temporal blessing and temporal judgment, this kind of one-to-one connection, sin, judgment of God, we need to be careful But even for us as Christians, there is much that we can learn from the temporal blessing and the temporal judgment experienced by people under the old covenant. You're tracking with me. I want to read some words from our own confession of faith on God's law that are really good and helpful. This is about how God uses his law in the lives of his people. Chapter 19, paragraph 6 from our confession. The punishment threatened by the law shows the saints what even their sins deserve and what troubles they may expect in this life due to their sin, even though they are freed from the curse and undiminished severity of it. The promises of the law likewise show them God's approval of obedience and the blessings they may expect when they keep it, even though these blessings are not owed to them by the law as a covenant of works." So I'm going to unpack that for a second. This is a significant way that God uses his law in the lives of his people. We're not not earning anything through obedience to the law. Let's get that straight. We're not escaping punishment through obedience to the law. Christ has handled all of that, amen? All of it, done. He has fulfilled its penalty. He has fulfilled its requirements. That's over. But we look at what's happening as we read God's holy word. We look at what's happening, for example, in the lives of this family in Ruth. We look at countless other texts where we see the horrors that come to God's people as a result of disobedience and breaking the law. We see how God blesses them when they keep it. And we should be struck by these realities, that it is good to obey God's law. Amen? Amen. Amen. And it is horrible for us to break it. And it ruins lives. It only brings sin, ruin, destruction, pain. Breaking God's law is always a terrible idea. It does not matter what we think or how we feel about that. And following God's law is always right and always good for us. And good, here's the thing, good for everyone who will ever be near to us. You want to love your neighbor. You want to love your family. 
live in light of the law. It will go better. Now, continuing, though, to think about God's work in our lives. Not only does he use his law to guide us this way, he works through providence and grace. He works through providence and grace. That's kind of sub-point number two. So here, when we start talking in these terms, we're in the realm of God's sovereign work in the lives of his people. What we're about to consider for just a minute is providence. Like God is orchestrating all of it, and he is purposeful in all of it. And what we're about to consider is grace. I'm, I'm saying this because what we're going to think about for just a minute, when we're in it, doesn't feel like grace. Doesn't look like grace, doesn't sound like grace, doesn't sound good at all. But it is. All right, so what happened with Naomi, for those familiar with this story? What happened with her? Eventually, God would repent and restore her. But before he does that repenting and restoring and redeeming and filling, that putting back together stuff, he brought her to the end of herself. It was painful. She would go back to the promised land, back to Bethlehem. She would hear, verse 6, she would hear that God had visited his people and given them food and she would return home. And God would do marvelous things for her. But she would struggle her way through that whole thing. But in and through that, God would accomplish his work in her and for her. Now, God does this with us too. Amen. He does this with us too. Even through bitter and hard things like he did in Naomi's life. Again, I'm going to read some other words to you from our confession. They're good. Chapter 5 on divine providence, paragraph 5. Just listen to these words. The perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows his own children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. And we think, all right, why would he do that? Answer. He does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence upon him to sustain them, to make them more cautious about all future circumstances that may lead to sin, and for other just and holy purposes. So, whatever happens to any of his elect happens by his appointment for his glory and for their good. Amen. That's our hope and confidence, that even when we sin and stray and struggle, the Lord works in and through that to produce good in us. The sin is not good. The struggle in and of itself is not good. The miracle is the fact that God works in and through that to produce good. And he's always faithful to do so. He humbles us. He reminds us and shows us how much we need him and his grace. He shows us how much we are in need of Christ always and his righteousness in our place. He teaches us and gives us wisdom so that we might have a better perspective the next time we encounter something that could lead to sin and ruin in our lives. And the hope, brothers and sisters, in all of this is that God in his grace overcomes our sin and rebellion. And like I said at the outset of this portion, 
Here's the, the real talk piece of this. This might not feel sweet or good in the moment, and it often does not. It feels hard and it hurts, and we struggle really badly with that as human beings. We, a lot of times, we get things twisted. We are terrible, emphasis, terrible evaluators of what God's work, in fact, is in our lives. We tend to think, if it's uncomfortable, it must be bad and God's not in it. Do we not? Am I alone in this? I don't think so. If it's uncomfortable, if it's painful, if it's heartbreaking, it has to be bad and God is not in it. The thing itself might be bad, but beloved God is in it. Remember, it is Satan who would have us be comfortable in sin, not God. And remember that inner turmoil or trying circumstances do not for one second mean that you are not Christ's and that God does not love you. In fact, in certain seasons of our lives, the very presence of those things could very well be the evidence that we are Christ's and that God loves us. That's because he lovingly disciplines his sons and daughters. That's because he pursues the ones he loves and he works in our lives. Consider these words from the pen of John Newton. I want you to just listen. This is a poem. It's been put to music. We will sing it in this church one day, Lord willing. I'm going to read it slowly so that you can reflect on it. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I'd schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. And in all of that, Saints, God is with us, and he loves us, and he doesn't let us go. Our Father not only allows us to retrace our steps, he stirs our hearts to walk the road home. He humbles us. He gives us eyes to see that the arms of his mercy and grace and love will embrace us when we return. Naomi in this story, for her part, was far from blameless in all of this. But she had a future. 
because of God's grace. And so do you have a future. So do I for the very same reason. Reflection number three. Everything that we're thinking about, in particular how God works in our lives and how he brings about these good purposes, even through difficulty in this fallen world, all of this is grounded in reflection number three. Unashamedly, our God is a redeemer. Our God is a savior. He redeems prodigals. Naomi is a prodigal. She's left the land. She will return. God will bring her back. Our God is the one who clothes the naked and raises up the humiliated. He feeds the hungry. And he sings over the downcast. The first five verses of Ruth are characterized by emptiness. And God redeems out of emptiness. We're going to think more about that in the coming weeks, like high level, how God redeems out of emptiness, how he breaks us in order to put us back together. He empties us to fill us. But for our purposes today, I want us to just continue to turn the diamond of redemption, the diamond that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and consider it from maybe a slightly different perspective. Naomi's emptiness in this account was the result of sin high level. By that I mean it was a result of the fall. It was a result of the curse. And in some ways, Naomi's emptiness in this account was the result of sins committed by herself and her family. The same is true for us. Exactly true for us. Our emptiness that we experience is because of sin high level. The fall of man, the world is cursed. It was the world in Romans 8, we're told, right, was given over in bondage to corruption for a season of time. It was subjected to futility for a season of time. We live in a world that's groaning, and we groan too. That's because of sin high level. But at times, we bring emptiness on ourselves through what we do, through sinful choices, thoughts, and actions. We're just like Naomi. And God redeems out of that emptiness. To highlight how good God is in that redemptive work, consider this. As we think about emptiness, there is one person in the history of the world, there is one person who experienced emptiness and it was not because he was a sinner. Now, this person, of course, is our Savior. Jesus, God the Son who took on flesh, right? Jesus of Nazareth. He left the glories of heaven to enter exile in a fallen world. He emptied himself by taking on human flesh. As is expressed beautifully in the song entitled, Welcome to Our World, we sing this, wrap our injured flesh around you, breathe our air and walk our sod. Rob our sin and make us holy, perfect son of God. The God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, knew suffering in this life. We read in Hebrews chapter 2 that he was perfected by suffering. Sometimes we think and reduce it down to the fact that he suffered in his death, which is certainly true, but he suffered his whole life in that way. He was obedient as well his whole life. He was obedient 
as well in his death. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? He suffered in his life and death. He obeyed in his life and death. And he is the atonement for our sins. He is the absolution for our guilt. He is our righteousness. We receive all of that. We don't achieve any of it. We trust, we rest, we hope in Christ. And at the end of this life that he lived, a life of suffering and a life of perfect obedience, he would be again emptied. He was stripped quite literally of everything and hung on a cross. And he once again would take on something of ours. This time it wasn't our flesh, it was our sin. And he was crushed for it. On the cross, he thirsted. He cried out as he bore the wrath of God in the place of ruined sinners. And he died. And he did that in accord with the plan that he and the Father had made from before the foundations of the world, one. And he did that for us. Both of those things are true. Hebrews 2, 14 and following. We read of how it is the children, the children of Abraham that he helps. Because the children share in flesh and blood and are enslaved to the devil and the fear of death, he took on all of that and died to set us free. And he now reigns at the Father's side where he intercedes for us. And here's the thing about him too. When we experience suffering and pain and we go through times in life that we just frankly don't like, it's natural for us to feel as though God is far away. It is natural for us to feel as though God is distant or that he is apathetic. He just doesn't care. But we're told about our Savior in the Scriptures that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He knows it. We're told that he is a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way that we are tempted yet without sin. And so any time that we experience loss, any time that we feel the pain of God's purifying work in our lives, any time we weep over suffering, we can know that every tear, every pain, every grief is something that our Savior himself understands. As we've already said, beloved, our hope is Christ. Our hope is God's grace. And our hope is God's faithfulness. He is the Redeemer who crushes in order to save. He's the one who breaks in order to put back together. He's the one who empties in order to fill. He is the one who brings low so that we might see our poverty. And once he's done that, it is his joy to exalt us in his Son. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people, Psalm 113. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy 
from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor, 1 Samuel 2. Beloved, this is our God. This is the God of Ruth. He is a redeemer. Things may be hard now. As you sit here today, your heart might be breaking. And if things aren't hard today, they may very well be tomorrow. Our circumstances, our sin, our doubt, those things are all real. But fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. May it be. Let's pray.